All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we look at God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful we can take this time to reflect upon your word, that you have revealed this to us. You have preserved it through the centuries. We are blessed beyond many believers in the church age, for we have our own copy of your word. We have our own translation that is pretty accurate, and we can understand what you have written to us. And Father, as we take the time to Uh, think about, to talk about, to learn from what is revealed about the Lord's table today. We pray that you would open the eyes of our soul, that we may take in your word, and that God the Holy Spirit would instruct us, and that we would submit ourselves to what your word has to say uh, in terms of each of our spiritual lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew. Matthew chapter 26, and this is the main chapter in Matthew in this course of events in the last week of our Lord where he institutes uh, the Lord's table. Our central passage this morning is in Matthew 26, verses 17 to 30. Now, what we have seen already in this chapter in Matthew is that Jesus begins at the end of the day where he has had a very, very long day. He, it's part of the same day where he has, has spoken to his disciples about end time events in what we refer to as the Olivet Discourse. That concluded at the end of chapter 25 and we're told it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples. And there he announces that he will be crucified in two days. Then we're told in verses 3 through 5 that the the religious leaders, the chief priests, the elders of the people, had conspired together. They met at the palace of the high priest who was Caiaphas, and they are plotting to take Jesus' life, but they're afraid of the people. So they don't want to do it during this festival time. This is Passover. This is one of the most significant days in in the whole Jewish calendar. In, In Christianity, sometimes we talk about Christmas and Easter Christians. Well, in Judaism, they talk about Passover and Yom Kippur Christian, uh, Jews. You know, they just show up those two days out of the whole year. Well, this is one of those two significant days. It is, uh, and feast because Passover will come and, uh, then that, then what begins the day after is the feast of unleavened bread. And so the religious leaders are fearful of starting something, uh, during this time because, uh, they don't want to create a riot among the people. They know how popular Jesus is. Then, we're told in verses 6 to 13 about this dinner that Jesus has that, that night. And I believe, as I covered a couple of weeks ago, uh, when I talked about not being stingy with God, that this is a, an event that occurs that night. I'm not going to go into all the details, but it doesn't make sense if it occurred earlier because it's intimately connected with what Judas does. And it is the occasion for Judas going to the uh, religious leaders to bargain, to make a deal, to betray Jesus. Now, what we see here, the way this is structured, is in verse 5, they're saying, no, we don't want to do it during the feast. Well, we all know that's exactly when they did it. What enabled them to move up the timetable was that 
they had an inside guy who would betray Jesus so they could arrest him without it being in public. It would be a quiet thing. So this just doesn't make sense if if this introduction of the anointing happens um, earlier, happened like on Saturday night before the entry. So there's this episode with the where the unnamed woman anoints Jesus' head with expensive perfume. And then we're told in verses 14 through 16 that one of the 12, Judas Iscariot, goes to the chief priest and he bargains for a uh, price of 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of a slave, a slave's life if he was killed, um, and that sets up the opportunity. So this is what's going on here. Now, we're also told a couple of things about Judas and about this event over in Luke. And what we're told is that what happens at this point when Judas goes to bargain that he is entered into by Satan. We're told that there are actually two times that Satan possesses Judas. This first time is when he goes to bargain with the religious leaders. And in Luke 22, 3 and 4, it expands on what Matthew says. And we're told then, and the then is immediately after his uh, his leaving to go bargain with the religious leaders, then Satan entered Judas surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray them. So this is clearly a distinct event from the event described in John 13, 27, which takes place in the middle. We'll see this a little later on. In the middle of the Seder meal, Jesus is going to hand a a sandwich. It's called the Hillel sandwich. It's an odd little sandwich. We'll talk about that. And he hands that to Judas, uh, the, and it's the third time he talks about being betrayed, and it's the second time he identifies his betrayer as the person who dips with him or, or eats with him. And that's in John thirteen twenty seven. And we're told that after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So that's a second entry. In both places, it uses this word ace erkamai. Erkamai is the basic word to go into or to come into. When you add the prefix ex, which means to come out of, it means to leave or to exit. If it has a, the prefix ace, that means to go into. So it is, it's the same word that's used in passages like Luke 8, 32 and 33, for example, of a demon entering into somebody. So it's a clear statement of satanic indwelling, taking over the body of Judas, which clearly shows that Judas was not a believer. We've studied the doctrine of demon possession many times that uh, the uh, demon does not possess a believer. He does not indwell a believer. So this is the background. And then the scene shifts to uh, two days later, the Passover now, in verse four, uh, starting in verse 17. And this is the preparation for the Seder meal. It's covered in Matthew 26, 17 through 19, Mark 14, 12 through 16, and Luke 22, 7 to 13. And what I'm trying to do as we go through this, especially these last couple of days, Jesus going to up to the cross and after that, is to put together for us uh, what is going on in all of the Gospels. Now, I'm not going to get into all of John 13, and Jesus also teaches the disciples in the, what is called the Upper Room Discourse in John 14, 15, 16, and then his high priestly prayer in John 17. I'm not going to cover all that. I'll just summarize a few things briefly so we can see how how all of the Gospels fit together. So in Matthew 26, 17, we're told now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, in the second temple period, this is the second temple period. First temple period was the temple Solomon built up till it was destroyed in 586 B.C. Then when the Jews were, at that time, Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, the Jews were 
basically removed from the land, not totally, but mostly, and taken into captivity in Babylon. They returned in approximately 538 B.C. and rebuilt the temple, and it was dedicated in 516. So that's the beginning of the second temple. It was the temple of Zerubbabel, and then Herod the Great came along to uh, expand it and to completely remodel it and, and rebuild it, but the sacrifices never stopped. So it's still the second temple. It's just the, it's the Herodian temple and it's still the second temple period. And during this period, there had been a conflation of the two days that began this feast. According to Exodus 12.6, Passover began at sun, uh, began on the 14th of Nisan. And then on the 15th of Nisan, the next day is the beginning of the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread. So at, by this time, they just refer to the whole thing as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover is the first day, but they're calling it the first day of unleavened bread by, by this particular time. What Jesus is talking about is the Passover. The word here is Pascha, which is the word that is always translated uh, Passover. And it can refer to the Passover itself, the day itself, or it can refer to the Passover lamb, which is the sacrifice of the, uh, of the lamb. There are different terms that are used in the Old Testament. Pascha is a um, transliteration of Pesach instead of P-E-S-C-H or P-S-K-Pasca, it reverses it to Pesach. I'm from Pesach to Pasca as it goes from Hebrew to, uh, to, to, uh, Greek. So that's in Exodus 34-25. It's, um, Pesach is used by Moses of the sacrificial lamb in Exodus 12, uh, 12 21. And it's also referred to as hog. That is a term for a festival. For example, if you're talking to somebody Jew- Jewish and you want to wish them a joyous feast day, you say hog sameach. Sameach is a word for joy. Hog is the word for feast. So that is, that's the greeting, whether it's Yom Kippur, or Rosh Hashanah, or Pesach, Hag Sameach is a good good greeting. Not so much for Yom Kippur. That's a real sad day, so you don't wish them a joyful. Uh, that's their day of mourning and repenting. Now, as you look at the Passover meal, there are two things that are necessary for preparation, and that really helps us to understand the background that we see as, as background for what we see in the observance of the Lord's table. There are two things that speak of cleansing. One is the removal of all comets from the house. Comets is leaven. Uh, leaven is anything that is going to uh, turn into or, or begin to uh, ferment. Uh, so it would involve various different kinds of, uh, of flour and wheat, and, and, and um, uh, leaven is that which causes it to, to ferment. And then there's the uh, washing of the hands called the urchats. And so that tells us through the ritual that before you can observe the worship in the Passover, there has to be a cleansing from sin. Leaven always represents sin. So what happens at the beginning of or prior to the Feast of Unleavened Bread is everybody in the house goes through the house and they find all the leaven that's there and typically what they will do to symbolize it at the end they'll pour some on the counter on the table and then they'll use a feather because they don't want to get anything uh, corrupted by touching the leaven they use a feather and a wooden spoon because it won't infiltrate the spoon they scoop it up into the spoon and they'll take it out make a little ceremony of throwing it away or burning it and that symbolizes the fact that the house is now cleansed See, what we do in the church age for cleansing is we confess sin. The failure to confess sin on the part of the Corinthian believers, was they were coming to the Lord's table and they were abusing it, and that's why Paul said that many of them uh, suffered. They, they slept, which was a euphemism for death, or they were sick and they were weak spiritually because they 
were not coming to the Lord's table in fellowship. They weren't confessing, confessing sin. So Paul says to, we are to examine ourselves. That's part of what is necessary in confession so we can identify sin and admit it to God. So the cleansing represents for us confession. Overall, Christ is our Passover. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Therefore, purge out the old leaven. Just borrows from that whole imagery. Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. As believers, we are positionally cleansed. Okay? We are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So when we look at the scripture, Passover refers to the Passover lamb, it refers to the it refers to the day itself, and it refers also to Jesus. Now there's a couple of key elements that are part of the Passover meal. There's the sacrificing of the lamb. In the original Passover, they would sacrifice the lamb. They chose the lamb on the tenth of Nisan, and they evaluated it for. Uh, four days to make sure it was without spot or blemish. And then they would sacrifice the lamb and they would take the blood from the lamb. And at the Exodus event, they went to the door, the door and they spread it on the doorpost. So on each side of the door and at the lintel on top. And if you connect the dots, you get a cross. And then the lamb was roasted on a crossed spit. So there's a lot of symbolism there that foreshadowed uh, the sacrifice of Christ. So the two key elements are the Passover lamb, the sacrifice of the lamb, and then the eating of the meal, which is a picture. Eating is always a picture of fellowship. It's a picture of reconciliation. It's a picture of community. All of these come together in eating. So this is a picture of our fellowship, uh, fellowship with God based upon that sacrifice. The Old Testament origin of the Passover goes back to the 10th plague when God was going to take the life of the firstborn in every, every family. And so the Passover event itself, that whole event speaks of the redemption of Israel from slavery to sin. When it's transferred over for us at the Lord's table, it is a picture of God's redemption for us of slavery, slavery to sin. So the focus is on God's grace. Now, what happens next in the preparation, as as uh, Jesus has said in verse 17, they are the disciples have asked, "Where do you want us to prepare to go eat the Passover?" Jesus says in verse 18, He said, "Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says." My time is at hand. Jesus knew this was the time that he was to die. He was crucified, the scripture says, from the foundation of the earth. He knows what the timetable is, and this is, this is the time. And so he sends them into a city. It's a lot like before the uh, entry into Jerusalem just, uh, just four days earlier where he sent the disciples in to just ask somebody if they could take a colt that Jesus, so Jesus could ride into the city. But in Matthew, he just says, go into the city. He doesn't tell us who of the 12 is going. Luke expands on it. And in verse 8, we read, he sent Peter and John. So he only sends the two. Peter and John are his primary go-to guys among the disciples. And go and prepare the Passover for us that, that we may eat. And so he is... Um, uh, preparing them, and he gives them specific instruction. He gives them specific instruction in terms of finding the place to meet. And he says to them in verse 10, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there make ready. Now, there's a couple of things we ought to note about this. First of all, in Middle Eastern culture today as well as then, the primary person who's going to be carrying water into the house is going to be the woman of the house. 
So you're not going to see the man carrying the water bottles and the water jugs back from the uh, uh, 7-Eleven to get get to the house. So it's going to be unusual. They're going to be able to walk in, and as soon as they see a man carrying the water, they know that's him. That would be a very unusual thing to see. Second thing we ought to note here is their question is, where's the guest room? And it's the furnished upper room in verse 12. Now, the word translated the upper room here is the word kataluma in the Greek. That's the same word that's used for there's no room at the, quote, inn in uh, Luke chapter 2 when the uh, Mary and Joseph went to, went to Bethlehem. And for years we have conjured up this image of either a place where the caravans would camp out or a nice little Motel 6 that didn't have the light on anymore. Everybody has their own image of this inn, some kind of medieval inn. But the, the word there isn't the word for in that's used in the story of the uh, Good Samaritan. It's this word, kataluma. Every house had an upper room. People would go up there, uh, go up on the roofs. Part of it may have been open, so it was cooler in the summer. But this is where your guests would stay at the time of Mary and Joseph. They had other family that was already there, so Mary and Joseph uh, went down and stayed in the area that was reserved for bringing in the favored uh, farm animals. So uh, they want to go to the upper room. This is where the a large group, a large family gathering at the times of the Jewish festivals would occur. At Passover, you don't sit at a table, you recline, so they would have had a, a low table uh, set there and then cushions around it, and so it was prepared for them. Now, they would have had to have done some other things in the process. They would have had to go to the temple. They would have had to get the lamb that they were going to roast. Uh, this would, going to the temple, would involve uh, going to the various uh, mikvahot. A mikvah is a ritual bath, and there's, there's uh, dozens of these on the southern steps going into the uh, temple, and they would have washed, they would have immersed, they would have been cleansed. So we get this picture again and again of the necessity of cleansing before worship. They would have gone to get the uh, lamb at that time because there were so many uh, Jews in in um, in Jerusalem, many of them camped out on the hills around Jerusalem. That they um, that the Levites had the one of the original assembly line production teams. They had three long lines, and there would be some who were designated for uh, slitting the lamb's throat. Others were going to skin him. Others were going to disembowel him, and they would just do this very rapidly. About every 15 seconds, there was another lamb that was ready and prepared to take home and to roast. And as they sacrificed, the priests would sing from the Hillel Psalm, Psalms 113 to 118. So they would then take it home, and tradition tells us, there's nothing biblical that tells us, but that this was the home of John Mark's parents. And if you go to Jerusalem today, you will be shown one of two possible sites. Uh, on a scale of one to five, one, it's pure legend, Five is it's pretty accurate, like the Temple Mount and Golgotha and the Mount of Olives. This is about a one plus. So nobody knows where the upper room was actually located. What's there is just pure, uh, pure tradition. And so the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, the Passover, as I stated earlier, has its origin in the Exodus event in coming out of Egypt. And that God, one more time, tenth time, asked Pharaoh to let his people go. That's grace again and again and again, God giving him that opportunity. And this time the, the threat was, if you didn't, then the oldest, the firstborn in every family of all your herds would die. And the solution was going to be applying the blood of the lamb to the doorpost, the blood of a perfect lamb who was without spot or blemish. God gave these specific instructions on the lamb to Moses. See, God always has one way. 
The world says they hate this exclusiveness of Christianity, that there's only one way. But God's always had one way. There's only one way uh, at the ark to get onto Noah's ark. There's only one way to observe Passover. Uh, There's only one entry into the tabernacle. There's only one entry into the temple. There's only one way, and that's God's way. He's the one who defines it. So the way to avoid losing your firstborn is through a perfect lamb who was to be sacrificed and his blood applied to the doorpost. And also at that time, the only thing they had additional was unleavened bread. The reason given for it at that time is because you're in a hurry, because God's going to release you and you need to have your bags packed ready to go. You're going to eat the meal standing up. But from that point on, they would eat it reclining and relaxed because they were looking back to that event. And so they were ready to go. Not one Israelite died, and according to Talmud, according to legend, not one dog barked. It was a quiet night as God passed over the Israelites, and no life was lost. That's the Old Testament origin. They were to repeat the feast year after year as a memorial forever, and this is the focal point of Passover. It is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, as John the Baptist announced, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So now we come to verse 20, and in verse 20 we have the beginning of their Passover observance. This is a Seder meal. We're told when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. According to uh, Passover tradition, that the lamb was to be sacrificed and eaten between the two uh, dusks, okay, between the the sunset. So as, as the sun sets and it's dusk, they would begin to eat. So he sat down uh, with the twelve. The original Passover, as I just said, had a uh, roasted lamb, bitter herbs, and unleavened bread. But by the time you get to the second temple period, there are other things that are added. I have a Seder plate down here on the table you can look at later. Things were added after the Babylonian captivity. An egg was either added then. Some people think it's added by Christians to represent new life. It's the, the origin of some of these additions is just murky and obscured in the fog of history. I've researched it. I talked to a lot of other Jews, uh, Jewish scholars that have researched this. Nobody knows where this comes from. And one of the most interesting is the matzotash. This is a matzotash. The bread that is eaten is the matzah. It is unleavened bread. Now, the matzotash is a, a container for the matzah, and it has three compartments in it. So you have three different pieces of unleavened bread. Now, if I can do this, this got together. And what you do is at the beginning of the meal, they go into the middle compartment, and they take out the middle, and they take it, and they break it, and they put it into another bag, wrap it up in a napkin. This is called the afikomen, which is the uh, means after. It's the Greek word for dessert. And you take that and you give it to a child or someone, and they go hide it. Later on, they have to find it. Now, the question is, where does this come from? Okay, let's go through the slides. So we have this matzotash. It's broken. It's called the bread of affliction, so it has to do with suffering. And at this time, they'll start to rehearse the story of of the Exodus. And as matzah is made today, and you can see it here, but I've had matzah, I've heard some Jewish Messianic scholars say, well, it has to be pierced, it has to be striped. We're not sure if that's how it was at the time of Jesus. That's how it's manufactured today. But I've had matzah at some Seder meals in, in Israel that's not quite like this. It's unleavened bread, but it doesn't look like our nice little Manischewitz matzah that we pick up at, at Kroger, okay? So this is the matzah that's in there, and this was the piece that the Lord broke and passed out to his disciples. 
Now, we're not sure when this came into effect, but it's some people, some Messianic Jews think that it came into effect after Jesus and was introduced into into the Seder meal. Others think it was before. We're not we're not sure. the The way the uh, uh, Seder is observed today, you, you read it in the Haggadah, which is the book of instructions, and this was codified by a guy named Judah the Prince or Judah Hanasi around 200. So that's about 150, 170 years after Jesus. But the a things didn't change as much and as rapidly at that time as they do now. B, the Pharisees were fairly conservative people. They weren't introducing a lot of new things all the time. I don't think a lot of things had changed. They, they write it down and codify it around 200, but, but what they're writing down has been going on for uh, several hundred years. So I, I, I just don't know. But it's interesting that in the modern observance of a Seder, you have these three compartments, and they come up with various explanations. Some people think that it uh, uh, stands for the uh, prophets and the priests and the Levites or the, or the Levites and, and Israel and the prophets or different things like that. They have no real idea what it is. But it's interesting that why would you, if it's the, the prophets and the priests in Israel, why would you take the priests out and break them? But if it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Jesus takes the middle one out and breaks it, it makes perfect sense. This is my body. It is a picture of the Trinity. The piercing of the matzah reminds us of Zechariah 12.10, when they look, up me, look on me whom they pierced, yes, they will mourn for him as the one who mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. So the afikoman is then taken, put in a special bag, and removed. We'll skip past some of these slides because I've already explained this. Uh, here's the explanation from uh, most Jews. It's either Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or uh, Levites, the Torah, the Nevi'im, or it could be the scripture, the Nevi'im, uh, Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, but they don't explain why it's broken. As they sat down to eat, they would have the first cup, and they would say the uh, Kaddish, which is a prayer of blessing when they took the first cup, which, said, which is Baruch Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Asher Kidshe, Neb Mitzitiv, Vetsuvanu Abur Kametz, and that is, uh, blessed, uh, it means, Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments, and has commanded us to remove chametz. So you've removed the leaven. That's that's at the very beginning. Kaddish means sanctification, and then they would drink the first uh, the first cup of wine. And some people say, well, wait a minute, wine is fermented. No, wine is the result of a fermented process, but the fermentation, the yeast is gone. It's done its work, so it's not leaven anymore. That's been removed, and that's why. Jews have wine at uh, Passover. It's four cups of wine, not four cups of grape juice. I know that bothers some some folks, but doesn't fit. So there's a washing of the hands, and Jesus adds a washing of the feet in John 13, 1 through 18, and this is the first prediction of Judas's betrayal. And in that whole episode where he's washing their feet, it's a picture of cleansing again, and it's a picture of the need for confession, which is why he tells Peter, if you don't let me do this, then you will not have a part. Word there is meros. It means you won't have a portion of the inheritance in the kingdom. doesn't mean he won't be saved, but there won't be rewards unless there's this ongoing cleansing. So this is what Jesus is teaching, uh, and it is during the supper. If you look at the text, and you've got King James or uh, New King James, it says uh, after supper, but it's during the course of the meal. It's at the beginning, uh, beginning of the meal. And so we read verse 2, During supper the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Notice this is... Satan's influence, but we learn from Luke that Satan has already indwelt him, put this idea into Judas's thinking, 
and he's going to betray Jesus. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father has given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. This is when he washes the disciples' feet, which is a picture of forgiveness and cleansing. And it is... Um, the focal point of all his teaching is at the end in John 13, 34, and 35 when he says, love one another as I have loved you. Forgiving one another is part of loving one another. And so all of that, it's not a picture of being a servant, which is often a misunderstanding that you will hear taught here. It is a picture of how the necessity of forgiveness and loving one another. Then there's a second uh, prediction of the betrayal by Judas. This is the first dip. There's a little cup down there on the Seder tray that's salt water, and it is a reminder of the bitterness of the experience in Egypt. And so you would take a bitter herb like, like parsley or lettuce, and you dip it. That's called the karpas. It's described in Matthew 26, 21 to 25, Mark 14, 18 to 21, and Luke 22, 21 to 23. Uh, with this dipping, with this first dip, Jesus is going to indicate that the one who's going to betray him is Judas. But the way they lie down in reclining, he's probably lying on his left shoulder, and Judas is next to him on his left. And when he does this and he gives this to Judas, nobody else really sees it. It's a private indication. Matthew twenty six twenty says, When evening had come at dusk, He sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, they're just like a bunch of self-absorbed Christians today. You're not any different. They go, Is it me? Is it me? You know, nobody can think objectively. They just get sucked into subjectivity and want to make, Oh, gee, it couldn't be me. Well, it could, but it's not. He says, And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say, Lord, is it I? Verse 23, he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. See, he's already dipped that parsley. That's the first dipping. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And Jesus said, you said it. It's pure, it's the same idiom today. You have said it. Jesus says, you said it, you got it right. And so that identifies Judas. Then we come to the next event in the Seder meal. That's the breaking of the matzah, which I have already demonstrated. And this is when Jesus broke the matzah. It's described in Matthew 26, 26, Mark 14, 22, Luke 22, 19, and 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 24. And we read, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and said, take, eat, This is my body. So he identifies the matzah as his body. It is a symbol representing his humanity. Now, his humanity is without sin. That's the focal point of of it being unleavened. If leaven represents sin, there's no sin in the unleavened bread. It represents the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. If there had been even a, a, a little white lie... Jesus would not have been qualified to go to the cross. Think about what disqualified everybody. It was when Adam ate a piece of fruit. That's not a biggie on most people's list of sins. Most people identify huge things as sins, but anything that violates the commandment of God is a sin. So Jesus is sinless, and that's pictured by by the matzah. When Paul writes about this to the Corinthians, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So you can see that when Paul writes, he gives the full statement 
Jesus, the gospel just say, take eat, this is my body, but it goes on to say, which is broken, broken for you. Then we get to the third prediction of the betrayal of, Ju- of Ju- by Judas. This is called the korek, the korek. This is where you take this, this sandwich. They call it the Hillel sandwich. Hillel was a famous rabbi at the time. And you take this mixture called karuset, which is a blend of, of uh, chopped up apple and nuts and honey and a little cinnamon and maybe a little lemon juice, and you put it out the day before and it gets all brown because it's supposed to represent the, the mortar that they would use in the bricks. But, of course, the pharaoh took away the, the mortar. So that represents those, those bricks and the labor. And you combine that. Are you ready? You combine that with some horseradish, and you put that into the sandwich. Now, the kids are coming in for um, uh, to hear the rest of this and get ready for, for the Lord's table, so that's okay. But they would eat this this Hillel sandwich because it's a little sweet, but it's also going to bring tears to your eyes. And so this is a reminder of also what is about to happen, that Jesus is going to be betrayed as the Psalms predict by a friend. So they eat this, this sandwich. And in John 13, 21, we read, Now when Jesus, uh, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit. That means he's having an emotional uh, response to these events. I keep telling people, it's not the emotion that's necessarily wrong. It's what you do with it. So he's going to be betrayed by a close friend. He's troubled in spirit, and he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. And there was one, now I have this up here to make sure you get, get it okay. Go to this slide. Then the verse 23 at the bottom. Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's how John always refers to himself in the gospel. So that's John. Simon Peter is also there at the head of the table, and therefore he motions to John. He says, hey, John, ask him. You know, ask him. You know, motions him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then, leaning back on Jesus' breast, John says to him, Lord, who is it? Now, this is a, he's not speaking in his outdoor voice. He's just quietly asking, well, Lord, who is it? Tell us. And um, Jesus said, it's he to whom I shall give a piece of, of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he takes that Hillel sandwich uh, and he gives it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. He's dipping the sandwich. He's made it with the corrosives, and he's dipping it in the horseradish. Yum. Aren't you salivating yet? Then they come to the third cup. The third cup is called the cup of redemption. And this is described in Matthew 26, 27 to 29, Mark 14, 23 to 25, and Luke 22, 20, as well as 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. He takes this cup and he gives thanks and he gives it to them and he says, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So he identifies his blood, that is the shedding of blood, his death, that this is the sacrifice that is the foundation for the new covenant. He's not saying it begins the new covenant, but it is the sacrifice that that establishes the new covenant. It will come into effect when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. His blood is shed for the remission of sins, King James. That's the word aphasis, which means forgiveness. It means to cancel a debt, and it's the cancellation of sin. So this is the third cup. In 1 Corinthians 11.25, Paul says, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So there's no set pattern given in the New Testament for the frequency of observing the Lord's table. It's as often as we do this. Some people uh, do it every week. 
Some groups do it once a quarter. Uh, We do it once a month on the second Sunday of every month. But the Passover, the Seder that Jesus observed with his disciples, not only looked back to the redemption from slavery in Egypt, and that original Passover and Seder looked forward to the coming of the Messiah who would redeem us from sin. Jesus also adds a predictive element to the Lord's table. It's not just looking back and remembering what Jesus did on the cross. It's also a future focus, and that comes up in verses 29 and 30. Jesus said, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So there were four cups that were taken in the course of the meal. He takes the third cup as the cup of redemption, but he doesn't take the fourth cup. The fourth cup is a cup that relates to the Messiah and the kingdom and he doesn't take it because he will not take it until he comes in his kingdom. And then we're told they went out, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They would have sung the second part of the Hallel Psalms, probably Psalm uh, 115 to 118, or some say 117 and 118, and they would have sung this, They did not drink from the uh, fourth cup, and then it ended. But since that fourth cup was not taken, it leaves us with a future focus. Now this morning, we're celebrating the Lord's table. The Lord's table is a time of remembrance. It's a time of thanksgiving. It's a time of worship where we should not only look back, but we should look forward to the coming of our Lord. It is a time when we as the body of Christ are in are fellowshipping. It's a meal. We are fellowshipping with God. It is a time for the believer to be in fellowship, which is why we prayed earlier. We make sure we are in right relationship with the Lord. And it is our time as a body of Christ. That's why it's called communion. Communion communion's another term for fellowship. And this is our time also to look forward. So I'm going to ask for the men to come forward. And as they come forward, I'm going to ask uh, Mark Reisinger to go ahead and come on up here so that he can return thanks for the bread. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your perfect plan of redemption that was in place before you created the world and that you've revealed yourself throughout history through your word so that we may see glimpses of our not only our salvation, but our future glorification. And as we take this bread, we ask that we would focus on Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. We retain the bread until all have been served. When Jesus took the matzah, he broke it, passed it out to his disciples, and he said, Take, this is my body, take and eat. I'm going to ask Greg Freehoff to please come up and return thanks for the cup. Let's bow. 
Gracious Heavenly Father, we're taught in Romans chapter 3 that we're condemned at birth because of the imputation of Adam's sin to us, and we have no ability to have fellowship with you. And yet, in your grace plan, your grace provision, and your mercy, you provided the perfect mediator for us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that uh, his work on the cross led to us being reconciled to you. We pray now that you would help us to focus our attention on our Lord's spiritual death for us and the the possibility that uh, as a believer we can have the imputation of the righteousness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. It's our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. When our Lord came to the third cup, he took it and he said, This is the new covenant of my blood which is shed for you. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. When they finished, they sang a hymn before they went out. We sing hymn number 185. When I survey the wondrous cross, we'll sing the third verse softly, crescendo on the fourth, and then I'm going to ask Bryce Birch if he would please come up to dismiss us in closing prayer. Please stand, number 185.